0: Well, this morning, I want to go back to a, a time in high school uh, to start. Uh, I remember when I was getting ready to graduate uh, high school, and you got the litany of questions from people about all your plans for life. Uh, and of course, as an 18-year-old, you had a really firm grasp on what that was going to look like. And uh, so you'd either make something up or give it your best shot. Um, And at the time, I can remember a few of my friends who were uh, painfully honest uh, with people, and so they would be asked these questions. They grew up in Sonoma County. They were eager to leave it, and so I remember one of uh, my friends overhearing a conversation. Where do you plan to go once you graduate high school? What dreams do you have, and where do you want to go? And his reply was, anywhere but here. (laughs) So not Sonoma County was his answer. He was ready to to get out of Dodge. and that anywhere-but-here kind of uh, mentality, can, can, you can actually find that in the church when we're talking about the kingdom of God, that it's an anywhere-but-here kind of kingdom. And we think what makes the kingdom of God great is what won't be there, death, tears, sickness, that its glory comes from what's kept out, not from what's within, within. Now, biblical talk about the kingdom does talk about both, right? It's good that death is not there and sin is not there, so we're not going to say that it's not. But it also talks in terms of the kingdom and our longing for the kingdom in terms of what is there. You know, last week we mentioned some things that will not be present in the final kingdom of Christ, disease and death and Satan and sin and those things. And it's wonderful that there won't even be a whiff of corruption in God's kingdom. But it is more than that, right? And we don't want to be just the group of people who will finally be anywhere but here. Or just that the joy of the kingdom is rejoicing that so-and-so or, or that certain thing isn't around. That there, Our life is just a little easier, there's a lot less hassle, and that's the extent of what the kingdom is. Imagine you were picking a vacation destination, and you found a flyer for a place called Henderson, Michigan, which is a place I made up. I hope it doesn't actually exist. But um, so, so you found a flyer for that, and it said, we don't have New York traffic or California house prices or the Gulf's hurricanes or the you know, snow in the north or the, the humid summers on the east. Would you be inspired by that? Like, that's a place I want to go. Right? It's a place I want to be. Wouldn't you want to know what Henderson, Michigan had to offer? What it is like there. See, the kingdom is something as well. It's not just the absence of things. And and the kingdom of God is the realest real. It's it's where God is, and God's presence is undiminished. Have you spent some time thinking about what, what will that be like? How will God rule there? How will it work, and how will God's people be gathered? This morning, we're going to hear God talk about His coming kingdom, humanity's great homecoming. And it is this place where life is lived under a perfect authority, which creates a just and righteous culture that maximizes the enjoyment of the most astounding being in all the universe. The kingdom of God is lived delight. And hearing the, his description of this kingdom will have an effect on us. Because Bible, the Bible's commercials for the kingdom are meant to stir our affections for what is to come, and it's also to help us to recognize the presence of the kingdom now. And that thanks to Jesus, we can experience in part his kingdom here, and it's in its fullness then. We've already heard from Isaiah chapter 11, where, which is actually a text we'll be in most of the morning, but I want to read from Revelation 5 again. This is the chapter we're going to be in throughout our time during Advent, and I want to read just the first five verses of that. So why don't we go ahead and stand in reverence for God's Word, and I'll read what this says. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, there's some in the back, in the lobby when you walked in. Go ahead and grab one. So you can follow along. Here's what God's Word says. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Last week, if you were here, we started our Advent series and, and this text with, by mentioning a problem, an earth-altering problem that surfaces in this text, which is the inability to bring about or to execute the final chapter of God's salvation story. That's what all this talk about, a scroll, why that matters. And all hope seems lost until one steps forward. And the book of Revelation picks up these titles of this, what would eventually be a lamb. We'll see that next Sunday in the following verses in Revelation 5. But the elder describes this lamb with certain terms that that make us think back to the Old Testament. So last week, we looked at the lion of the tribe of Judah and saw that this Messiah, this Jesus, uh, conquers his enemies. But then today it says, what we'll be looking at is the phrase that describes him as the root of David. The root of David. That's what we'll be looking at. So a quick look at our outline. We're going to look briefly in Revelation here. <clears throat> Remember where we've been. But then we're going to go back to Isaiah 11 and, and see what is meant by the root of David. We can blow by these phrases in the Bible and not understand them when they're just really rich phrases that describe important things. So, first, the root of David has conquered is what it says. and We know that the root of David, that phrase, has something to do with conquering because it says the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scrolls. And it's, it, it, Revelation is a very graphic book. There's lots of battles fought in it. There's lots of conquering going on. But this phrase is is an important one. If you looked at the very end of Revelation, actually, really quickly, in chapter 22, verse 16, it comes up again. So I just wanted to point it out before we go back to Isaiah 11. And here's what it says. Here's some of the final words of Scripture, of this Revelation. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright morning star. So, this demonstrates to us that this concept of the root of David is a significant thing. It doesn't merely refer to the descendant of David, but also what's called the root. These are some of the last words spoken by Jesus, and this is what he draws our attention to. So, we need to understand what's meant by this root of David. So, if you turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. While you're doing that, um, we could have turned a lot of places to look at at this language, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 33, those kinds of things. But we're going to be looking at Isaiah 11 because it's probably the most explicit reference to what this is. Now, David, of course, is an ancient king of Israel, right? He's the guy who Saul has been chasing. And as we've been looking at 1 Samuel or, or kind of throughout this year, He uh, defeats Goliath, he's the main author of the Psalms, he's the great sinner and savior of God's people that we know, and Isaiah is picking up on language earlier in the Old Testament, Uh, and Isaiah covers a lot of historical ground, if you know, Uh, he's well after uh, King David's time, Um, and Isaiah saw a lot of kings come and go, okay? Um, And some of whom who were descendants of David, um, a lot of them are more like the Bathsheba, take a census, sin type of Davids, (laughs) as opposed to the uh, man after God's own heart kind of Davids. Um, But he saw a lot of come through. And so Isaiah, as you read the book, almost seems bipolar in his description of what's going on. You go from really bleak, dark pictures of judgment to very, very bright, hopeful scenes of salvation, sometimes within the same chapter. So in chapter 6, as you might remember, there's that scene of these creatures flying around and the, his, his, the train of His robe is filling the temple and they're screaming out, Holy, 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 there's this vision that happens. There's really amazing descriptions of deliverance. like in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, it says, "...in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel." And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Beautiful picture of what deliverance is going to look like on the one hand. But then in chapter six, verses nine through thirteen, and this kind of sets up the context. Of The picture that we're going to find in chapter 11, we have the other side of that. And here's what it says. After the, here I am, send me from Isaiah, it says, And he said, go and say to this people, in verse 9 of chapter 6, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed." So a picture of drastic judgment, a vivid picture that we're all too familiar with, right? Where he decimates his people down to a tenth, and then he says they'll even be burned again like a tree that's felled. So Israel is like a forest that's been chopped down, it's laid bare, and only there's ugly stumps sticking up out of the dirt. The same fate befalls Assyria, the country that uh, the people that come and, and take Israel in chapter 10, when it says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. It's this image of judgment where all you look out at this, what was once a beautiful forest, and now it's just these stumps. It's this really vivid, drastic picture of judgment, of decimation. But in chapter 6, did you notice the last little line that I read to you when, he, when it said, The holy seed, or the holy offspring, is its stump. And in Isaiah 11, when you heard it earlier, in, chapter, in verse 1, it says, there, come, there shall come forth a shoot, or a branch, or a little sapling, a little sign of life, From the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There's this little glimmer of hope amidst a a forest that's been laid bare and chopped down that comes from the stump or from the line of Jesse. And David is a descendant of Jesse. And so, even though it looks bad, even though Israel's been pruned back. There's this little itty-bitty branch sprouting off one of the stumps, proving that life still remains in the roots of Israel. You see, God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would not lack a descendant to sit on the throne. And there were a lot of really crummy descendants of David that came along, right? So much so that the tree of Israel had to be hacked back in judgment, But in Isaiah 11, we see a beautiful description of what will happen with this little offshoot, this little sapling. Isaiah takes that little branch and he describes what will happen with this descendant of David. We'll see three things that occur, three ways that this little branch, this this little shoot will change the world. First is the king in verses 2 through 5 of Isaiah 11. The next is the kingdom in verses 6 through 9. And in verses 10 through 16, we'll see the gathering. So what is this root of David? What is it ultimately saying? There's a little sentence summary for you for what what that image really is supposed to help us to understand, and it's this. With divine authority, the root of David conquers God's enemies and establishes a unified kingdom of peace for God's gathered people. In the Bible, that's what David's root does. There's a divine authority that establishes this unified kingdom of peace for God's gathered people. Now, we can't fully jump into Isaiah 11, but I want to make sure that you see what happens from this little branch, this little shoot of Jesse, this descendant of David. First, a king emerges in verses 2 through 5. I'll read them quickly. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And verses 2 through 5 can be summarized with the phrase divine authority, with divine authority. You know, kings find themselves as kings uh, in different ways. Some are just family members and you you take over the throne because you're the son. Others manipulate politically or some murder people. If you look in the Bible, it happens a lot. And kings have very different approaches to ruling. Some try to maintain political alliances and trade political favors and do all this. But David's root, this this little branch who's going to come from David's line is going to do things differently. You'll notice that the source of his power and the source of his wisdom is not leveraging political favors, but it's the Spirit of God who gives him wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge. The people who heard this would think this doesn't sound like the kings of Israel. This sounds like a different way of ruling. This isn't a king shoving his way in, this is a king with inherent authority. Who's operating by the Spirit of God for the purposes of God, for the kingdom of God, and that's his sole and and only focus. So that he's not ruling by what his eyes see or what his ears hear or trying to, to make everybody happy. He's ruling under the direct authority of God himself, he's operating in the fear of the Lord. You see, in Isaiah 5.13, it says, Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. And That's because the kings of Israel needed to be brought low, being humbled because they were not operating in that fashion. Well, this branch, this root, he will be different. He will not rule in this way. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. That will be his fundamental and primary purpose. And that's where His divine authority comes from. And we see that the source and the power of that authority being the Spirit of God leads to different types of actions in the kings of Israel. Where it says, He'll judge with righteousness over the poor, with equity for the meek of the earth. There will be an even-handedness about His rule. He will lack no authority. He will strike His enemies. With the rod of His mouth, it will just take a breath to extinguish the life of the wicked. That's the kind of authority that this branch will have. And even with that authority, if you get to his inmost being, who he truly is at his core, which is what those inner garments is describing in verse 5, what you'll find there is righteousness and faithfulness. That will characterize him. And that's why he will treat people with a kind of equity, and both compassion and judgment. Do you find yourself, as you hear this type of king, leaning forward, wanting to be under an authority like that? Can you imagine being ruled by someone like that? Just think about Washington, D.C., right now. And think about the difference between Isaiah 11 and how, what we're living in now. You see, authority itself is not the problem. It's not our cultural and national problem. It's authority spoiled that's the problem. And here we have perfect authority that you want to be under and submissive to. And so what will happen when this branch comes he'll be a different kind of king. He'll rule with divine authority is what we see in verses 2-5. through five. And that's why our sentence started with with divine authority. The root of David conquers his enemies. Now let's look at his kingdom in verses 6-9. through nine. This is the classic image, right? Of the wolf lying down with the lamb. It's kind of the quintessential description of harmony and peace that gets used in all kinds of weird ways. But notice, it comes from the rule of this branch, of this root of Jesse. And under this Messiah, predators are not dangerous, but are found alongside the very animals that they had for meals before. You know, when we visited Yellowstone this past summer, I didn't see any cows grazing by these grizzly bears that were like walking around, right? I mean, just imagine that, like children playing by their favorite snake pit. Just things that you're so accustomed to. so It's so normal. And what explains this bizarre scene? I think it's the last verse when it says, For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be comprehensive understanding and submission to the creator of the universe to the point where every living thing will live in harmony with one another under the authority of Of the Lord Jesus. Think about what predator and prey. This is hardwired into them from birth. What what will it be? What will human relations be like? If even animals are interacting in this way. See, this description of Isaiah eleven is more than the calm of a bath, or the excitement of the first day of vacation, or the thrill of the honeymoon. This is a kind of harmony, of a synced cooperation in God's created order that we have only faintly tasted. Imagine a day when your body and your mind and your community of friends and your workplace and your local leaders and your environment and your nation and your spiritual life and your spiritual knowledge of others are all working perfectly together in harmony. Just imagine that. A good day is when a few of those things line up well. Right, But here, creation is firing on all cylinders under the lordship of Jesus. And this is the peace that you and every person you know on planet earth is hungering for, as described in Isaiah 11. Have you ever wondered why we're surprised when things don't work out? That's like every human's experience from the time they're born. Things don't work out, and the reason we hunger... What we're surprised by when things don't work out is because we were made for a world where things do work out and do work together. And it's described right here in the kingdom of God that's coming. We'll see this. We'll taste this. We'll be a part of this. So with divine authority, the root of David conquers God's enemies and establishes a unified kingdom of peace, the thing that is so that escapes us so easily will be the day-to-day norm in the kingdom. You see why people in Isaiah are reading along and just oh, so full of hope and then judgment. <laughs> and oh, that's right. <laughs> There's chapters like 11. <laughs> Let me read for you the last part when it describes the gathering of God's people in verses 10 through 16. Here's what it says In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath. And strike it into seven channels and he will lead people across in sandals and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This route of Jesse is going to be a rallying point, a signal which summons the nations, it summons God's people back to him. You know, in our technological age, it's easy to forget the importance of signals. And when Brie and I went to China and we got to walk on the Great Wall, um, 13,000 miles of massive walls, 25,000 different watchtowers posted along the way. So that if an enemy would invade, they would light fires at night or send smoke signals by day that would carry from watchtower to watchtower to watchtower to warn the people that they were being Attacked. It's this ancient telegram system that was pretty complicated to build. <laughs> In Isaiah 5:26, uh, the Lord metaphorically raises a signal for the foreign ar- these foreign armies to come and actually to invade his people. It says he will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. So it was God who summoned the nations to come and bring judgment on Israel. But here, the root of Jesse is put forward as a different kind of signal, a summons of sort to inquisitive nations, and as a signal for his his people that have been scattered throughout the the whole world to be recollected again. The nations that are listed, you'll find in verse 11, are representative of the most far-reaching places that were known at the time. There are also nations that you don't expect to be on the list. Nations like Assyria come in and decimate Israel. Or Egypt, who are the enemies of Israel. But these other places are simply the boundary lines of the known world, as far east and south and north and west as you can get. And the point is nothing will hinder the nations from noticing the signal. Everyone will see it. And notice the effect that it's going to have uh, on Israel. In verses 13 and 14, Ephraim is kind of the northern ten tribes uh, of Israel, and Judah is the southern uh, component, but they are collectively Israel together. And there's lots of infighting and problems that they have throughout the Bible, but notice God is going to stop this infighting and jealousy. To the point where their unity becomes effective and they 're able to, to fight together and take up uh, a fight against their old enemies, Edom and the Ammonites, and these people who are kind of classic arch enemies of god 's people, and so he creates this unity he calls, summons the nations, he summons his people from the four corners of the earth, and Israel 's put back intact for his purposes, and they, they do that and describes it in 15 and sixteen as kind of a um, a redoing of what happened with with Egypt in the Exodus where God took millions of people, a highway of people out of the strongest nation at the time and led them to his promised destination. And this is saying he'll, he'll do that on a much grander scale. So much so that they don't even have to take their sandals off march right through rivers. All enemies will be cleared out. All natural boundaries will be dealt with. I will get my people home, is what it's saying. He'll do. Which, if you think about it, is an astounding feat, right? To collect his people from all over the place. And not only that, but to get the attention of the nations. To join with God's people as a stream returning to Mount Zion. Because of this signal, this unique root of Jesse's signal will do that. And that's why our sentence ends the way it does. With divine authority, the root of David conquers God's enemies and establishes a unified kingdom of peace for God's gathered people. This is what the rod or the root of Jesse, this little branch, this little sapling, this little glimmer of hope, will accomplish. So if the lion of the tribe of Judah conquers God's enemies, the root of David installs this unified kingdom for God's gathered people. And you might be wondering, what, all, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus and Christmas? <laughs> it's a fair question at this point, okay? It's December, I get it. Here's, here's how it connects. The signal of this coming kingdom was the birth of the Messiah. Think about the significance of that day in regards to Isaiah 11. For thousands of years, God had been describing what this king would be like and what this kingdom would be like and how he would gather his people. But when Jesus was born, the king has a name. And the kingdom arrives and the gathering of God's people begins actually, really, in history. See, the king that's described in verses 1 through 5 in Isaiah 11 is Jesus. See, he's not only a descendant of David, but he is that hope that, that the Davidic uh, covenant pointed to, that there would be one that comes, and that the Holy Spirit would mark his rule, and isn't that the case when you look at the birth narratives? Think about it. From the time of Jesus' birth, the Holy Spirit was pointing to him. The Holy Spirit moves the baby in utero, John the Baptist, to identify the king who is to come, right? Mary is told in Luke 1.35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is how Jesus is conceived. Jesus himself, when he ministered, was filled with the Holy Spirit that the Gospel of Luke makes us see and understand. The king in Isaiah 11 doesn't take his cue from others. He has this divine authority, and time and time again, Jesus disappoints the Pharisees. He disappoints his own apostles. He does things that they don't understand. You're going to be crucified? What are you thinking? And why does he do those things? Because he is about his father's business. He is the root of Jesse. That's why. And it's only in retrospect that we can see that he has this different kind of authority that everyone is saying these kinds of things in the Gospels. Like, this guy just... He's just different. He just teaches with a different kind of authority. He just interacts with nature in a different kind of way. He, he tells diseases what to do and he brings dead people alive and he's doing these things. That This is different. And the Pharisees don't get it. They, they, they didn't come up through the schools of... Himel and all these, you know, Pharisaical traditions, and this guy just kind of comes out from nowhere from left field and is just teaching in the temple when he's a teenager. It's because he is the king of Isaiah 11. And he is operating in the fear of the Lord and for the Father's purposes alone. He demonstrates a concern for the poor and needy. He is characterized by righteousness and faithfulness. And if we wait long enough, he will execute vengeance on his enemies, as it says. Listen to Revelation 19, 11 through 21 in describing this Jesus. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Do you hear Isaiah 11 in the background? His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Does that sound familiar? Which he, he, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. You can read on from there, but he is, he is some, someone who decimates his enemies as well. And this terrifying and glorious king who operates differently is the baby of Bethlehem when he is born he is worshiped think about it he is worshiped by foreign dignitaries he is already feared by kings when he is born do you remember that only a baby and and kings are afraid of him it's because he is the king who has come he is also the explanation for for the kingdom that's described in verses 6 through 9 that that kingdom in part has begun now, nature is still wreaking havoc, right? People we know are still sick and struggling and facing death. But when Christ's ministry began, the Gospels are very clear that when Christ comes, the kingdom comes with him because he's the king. And so the apostles witnessed this sovereignty, this kind of kingdom that he, he calms storms and he raises the dead and he tells fevers to leave and he has authority over Demons. Do you remember what happens when John's disciples show up and ask if Jesus is the Messiah? Like, are you the the guy? Are you the one we're waiting for? Do you remember what Jesus did? He started healing people and driving demons out of people. And after a while, he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. And why would Jesus say that? Because he's saying the signs of the kingdom are here. The, the peace that's described in passages like Isaiah 11, I am bringing about. I have authority, and I'm demonstrating that authority in part now. And John knew that. So he's showing that where Jesus goes, the kingdom follows, and, and it's like a little microcosm, a little pocket, a shaft of heavenly light as he walks around to show this is what, in part, this is what's going to happen in full when the kingdom is fully here listen to revelation 22 as 1 through 5 as it describes this kingdom it says then the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's Isaiah 11 come to pass. So the kingdom that's described Arrives in part with the person of Jesus and will arrive in full when He returns. How about the gathering of God's people? As we look back on that, the gathering of God's people has begun. Think about the scene around the manger. Now oh, I know they didn't all come through at the same time, and there's all. The, I know that. Okay, so just we're okay there. But just think about the characters who are involved in this story. What a weird group of people together. Think, okay, who's gonna be, who needs to be there from the start? Let's grab some shepherds out of the field. Let's make sure shepherds are there. Let's pull noble visitors of these dignitaries from this foreign land. Let's make sure there, there's a carpenter, there's a young mother, some animals. I mean, this is a diverse group. What on earth would bring these people together? What on earth would bring. These people together, as Redemption Hill Church, the Messiah, the unifying Messiah, is gathering a people, a diverse people, from the very beginning, and everyone looks on and thinks, "Wow, you included that guy, like that lady's really the sinner woman? Are you sure?" And the whole time, there's this debate about the the cost of diversity right, of God's people. Later on, as Jesus grows, he defeats his enemy and cross at the empty tomb. He binds a strong man and starts flipping the team of the enemy. He's gathering a people. He's doing the same as he's describing in Isaiah 11. He's unifying his people. He is the signal that people are following. Listen to Ephesians 2. When it just talks to Gentiles, it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the, co- through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do You see, Jesus has, is unifying a people. And it bothers certain groups when he walks around and says different things. But he's doing it. And through the commission of, of Jesus, the church is gathering for himself a people he has tasked us in the, in the work of gathering and harvesting. And imagine that one day when evangelism will be over and those streams of people will come from places like Assyria to worship Him. Redemption Hill, the signal has been raised already. The watchtowers have been lit and it's spreading through the known world that the King and Kingdom of Isaiah 11 have come in the person of Jesus. They have. They're here. And this is a part of our call where we have been authorized harvesters and given power and authority to help gather, to collect God's multi-ethnic people. Listen to Revelation 21 to see how it all plays out. Verses 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now listen to this. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book. Of life. Do you remember how Revelation 5 continues? The new song that's sung. There's a few lines in that I want to point out. Here's what it says in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God will make sure his highway comes to Mount Zion. The gathering of God's people has begun and it will be completed one day and it will be a beautiful, beautiful thing. This little baby in Bethlehem is the kingdom signal. He is the beacon that has been lit. And so how do we respond to this? Maybe one of these three ideas has struck you. Whether it's that Jesus, that the baby Jesus is this king that's described. Maybe it's the nature of the kingdom that he brought and testified to and and showed in his life and will eventually bring in full. Maybe it's how he's gathering his people already. But how will you respond? Maybe the image of him being the king Will you worship him as such this Christmas? What a contrast. The baby king. Maybe it's the kingdom. Will this holiday season be marked by living for his kingdom purposes and not distractions? The kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming. Maybe that's what the Holy Spirit will stir in you to consider He's gathering a people for himself and will one day be with him again. Will this holiday season be a time for God to use you to gather more? The question for us this morning is, how does Isaiah's description of this coming king, kingdom, and gathering give us hope? How does it cause us to hunger for his rule and kingdom and the gathering of people? I love chapters like Isaiah 11. They give me hope. And they make me want to worship Jesus and live more fully for Him and tell more people about what He's done. Don't they? See, if this is what's coming, people, what are we hung up on, right? This is a little taste for us, right? That we get to have this side of heaven the feast is yet to come. We get taste here. But one day it will be a banquet. This banquet in Revelation is called The Great Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And I want to read this to you as we prepare in our, our hearts for communion time. Speaking of taste and feast. That's what we'll be doing in just a minute. Here's what it says about this great marriage supper of the Lamb. And what... These crackers and juice won't taste like this, just to warn you, but this is what is ahead for us. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And God is so gracious that he set up a way for us to remember that. This way is called communion. This is a time for God's people who are inside the protection of this gospel, this good news, to remember and to taste what will one day be a feast. That's so what I'm going to read to us out of Luke 22 as we prepare uh, for communion. Uh, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I hope that, that some of the shortcomings of this life have, have created a hunger and a thirst in you that maybe for the first time you're hearing can be satisfied through the person of Jesus and his rescue plan to make you right with God. If that's so, I'd encourage you to talk to the person who brought you this morning or talk to an elder. We'd love to explain in more full how it is that you can actually expect to sit at this feast one day. Let me read out of Luke chapter 22. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray as we ready our hearts for this time of communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for this taste. Thank you for the hope of a king who will rule with divine authority in his perfectly harmonious kingdom of all God's gathered people. Father, in the craziness and the nuttiness of this season, we thank you for this breath of fresh air. We pray that it would give us an eternal perspective to spend our lives well to worship the things that are worthy of worship and to participate in the task of gathering would you refocus our efforts would you refocus our hearts would you bring into alignment the things that inevitably have gotten off kilter I pray that this time of communion God that you would Help us to long correctly, to wait well for your return. And as we taste this bread and, and juice, I pray that it would both satisfy and create a hunger. Satif- satisfy us to remind us that, God, there will be this great marriage feast one day. And it would create a hunger to live more purposefully and to live for your sake. We thank you for these reminders, God, we need them, and you know that. So help us now to benefit from this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.